The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Team Takes Command in MDS, Guidance on Diagnostic and Treatment Principles for Risk-Based Care and Beyond. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TVR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I guess we will start. So welcome to the event titled The Team Takes Command in MDS, Guidance on Diagnostic and Treatment Principles for Risk-Based Care and Beyond. My name is Guillermo Garcia Manero from the Department of uh, Leukemia at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I'm really honored and happy to be today with uh, Dr. Rami Komroki, who is the Vice Chair of the Malignant Hematology Program at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, one of the leading institutions in the care research in uh, malodysplastic syndrome, and also with Dr. Aditi Sastri, who is the MDS lead at Albert Einstein uh, Hospital University in New York City. And with that, let's start with uh, the program that I think actually is extremely interesting program and very uh, uh, with excellent timing as a task meeting. We had two very important presentations that I think are going to move the, uh, the field and the care of our patients with MDS quite significantly. So this is kind of a copy of the famous AML uh, chronology of therapeutics slide, although a little bit more modest. But, uh, you know, it's actually very important for us as MDS uh, researchers to really think about actually significant progress that we, I think, uh, are achieving. So basically in the 70s, people start talking about the cytogenetics. Then in the late 90s, uh, Dr. Greenberg and uh, big international team put together this IPSS classification. That, of course, is not therapy, but it was really an important step forward because it served as the framework to think about this disease for a long time. And then in 2004, we saw the first approval of a hypomethylating agent. It's a cytidine that became the standard of care around the world for patients with uh, MDS, particularly those with high-risk disease. And then thanks to work uh, performed at uh, Dr. Comroque Institution by Dr. List, uh, lenalidomide was approved in 2005 for this very specific subset of patients with uh, Del5Q uh, minus uh, disease. A couple of years later, we got the, the cytamine approved, led by Dr. Kantarian here at MD Anderson. And then kind of we had a hard time getting more drugs for our patients, but there was a lot of work in many centers, including Albert Einstein, trying to understand this disease at different levels. So we came up with the IPSSR classification around 10 plus years ago. We started applying uh, next generation sequencing techniques for our patients. And then finally, in 2020, we saw two drugs approved for our patients. The first one was Luzpatercet. We're going to talk about uh, more about this agent in the next few slides. It was first approved as second-line drug for patients with ring seroblastic anemia that were transfusion-dependent and they were not benefiting or they were not a candidate for an ESA. And then a few months later, uh, we also led the approval of uh, cetazuridine and the cytabine, an oral hypomethylating agent for patients with malodysplastic syndrome. A little bit after that, we saw major progress by the development of the IPSSM classification, basically incorporating the IPSSR with the molecular data. And I think uh, at ASCO uh, the, on Friday, uh, we saw the two presentations from the COMMANDS trial, from the IMERGE trial. This is going to be discussed uh, in the next uh, few minutes. But uh, uh, as we were preparing this talk and we were you know, rehearsing a few minutes ago, we're very excited about the future, hopefully this year, with maybe incorporation of BCL2, maybe anti-CD47 antibodies, and other uh, combinations for patients also with high-risk disease. So I think that all of a sudden we're starting to gain traction. And to me, it's actually very interesting that 
to my surprise, it's happening first in low risk disease as opposed to high risk disease where, you know, all of us have been working so hard. But, you know, this is really positive uh, news. Now, despite all this great uh, news and kind of academic advances, there is a lot of work that we need to do. So there is data actually from uh, the Connect Myeloid Disease Registry. This is an important academic uh, uh, group uh, sponsored by uh, BMS, where we see actually that a lot of our patients still uh, receive only supportive care, so no therapy. And we see that actually in our, in our academic uh, referral patterns where some of these patients you know, could have received therapy or some type of intervention uh, earlier. And then um, even the SEER uh, data actually basically uh, suggests that actually the outcomes that we see in our patients are not uh, uh, in the community in general, are don't really reflect what we publish in our papers from clinical trials, et cetera. So we have quite a bit of work to, to do. So the goals of the uh, seminar today are summarized here. So we like to improve your or our understanding of baseline factors that can alter prognosis and help you individualize therapy for patients with MDS, enhance your understanding also of evidence supporting newer treatments for patients with low-risk disease and high-risk disease, and then prepare you to develop modern up-to-date management strategies for our patients, both uh, with high and low-risk uh, uh, disease. So hopefully in the next uh, hour, we will be able to accomplish a little bit of, of this. So let's start with uh, uh, some new developments in terms of baseline assessments and prognostication. So I think this is very well understood by the community now. Uh, there's some diagnostic criteria and differential diagnosis of this disease. Of course, you need to have some degree of cytopenia. You need to have a bone marrow aspiration and or biopsy to have really criteria that basically means that you have evidence of dysplasia in, in the bone marrow. You have probably uh, excess blast in a majority of the patients, at least, you know, over 5%, and then maybe some clonal abnormality that could be cytogenetic or, or molecular. You also need to exclude other uh, uh, situations that could mimic myelodysplastic syndrome. I actually, in my practice, very rarely nowadays see B12 for folate deficiency, but I have to say a couple of times a year, I see a patient with a newly diagnosed of HIV disease that was actually surprising to me, but something that you have to pay attention, the rare patient with copper deficiency, patients that are not very open to you in terms of alcohol abuse, medications. But actually, I think where we are starting to get very interested and it's actually complex is the bottom things, you know, things that may overlap with myelodysplastic syndrome, you know, uh, inflammatory autoimmune conditions. You know, Dr. Komroki uh, always uh, teaches me how, for instance, ITP can be a prodrome actually sometimes uh, for myelodysplastic syndrome. Uh, some of these overlaps with other anti-inflammatory conditions. Now, there is a lot of interest in condition on uh, BEXA syndrome as a kind of uh, uh, an entity that puts together kind of bone marrow failure with uh, severe inflammatory conditions. And then, of course, more complex uh, congenital disorders or other situations like uh, aplastic anemia, LDL. I actually see patients that are referred. This also happens a couple of times a year with hairy cell leukemia that, you know, actually are referred to me with myelodysplastic syndrome. So the bottom line is that a bone marrow aspiration biopsy is fundamental, actually, for this differential diagnosis. Together with uh, the progress that we have seen in terms of drug development, there's also quite a bit of movement in terms of um, uh, classification efforts. You know, for many years, we used the WHO classification. And by the way, to be open, that's what I still uh, endorse. But in the last uh, uh, edition of this, the fifth uh, uh, edition, I believe it's called, of the WHO uh, classification, there are actually significant changes uh, that, that are 
important in starting actually with a different name for uh, for this disease not referring to it as malodysplastic uh, syndromes anymore but as uh, malodysplastic uh, neoplasms in parentheses uh, mds to be open and, and just to make uh, rami a little bit uh, happy or you know i want to make him you know smile a little bit i think actually it's a mistake because i really think from the conversation a minute ago that mds actually is a syndrome but whatever it is we need to follow the rules of this who and you know that's how we are now uh, writing our uh, papers. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I like to really go through more of the therapy. I think you have access to the slides, but basically realize that we are changing some of the terminologies. We're starting to talk about specific mutational alterations that may define a specific subset of patients, for instance, SF3B1, bilelic TP53. You know, now we talk about MDS with increased blast that could be B1, EB2, or those patients with uh, uh, fibrosis. And remember that it's up to 20% blast, uh, uh, this uh, MDS uh, subset of patients. So this is a summary of what's really happening. So I already said that we kind of changed the name. We have a specific genetic subtypes, the MDS5Q, SF31, bilelic TP53. Some of the alterations that... Um, we were seeing before in the kind of context of MDS now are considered acute myelogenous leukemia. For instance, the very rare patient with an MPN1 mutation now will be acute myelogenous leukemia. And also the very rare patient with very poor prognosis with an inversion three or a MECOM uh, 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 rearrangement that now will be considered AML. In my opinion, this is semantics because whether you call this MDS and AML, the therapeutic approach is probably identical and the prognosis for the MPN1 MECOM very dissimilar, but very specific. There's also this distinct entity. This is actually of interest to all of us here. There's this so-called hypoplastic malodysplastic syndrome. It's a little bit of controversy how to approach that. We treat this as a plastic anemia, but this may not be universally accepted. And then again, differentiation between low blast and uh, uh, high blast. And then also this issue of this ICC classification that is kind of like a, a group that got out of the WHO classification that has a parallel uh, um, system to call uh, this uh, disease. The other very important thing, and Dr. Com Rocky has done really tremendous work here with the IPSSM, is actually the incorporation of these molecular biomarkers in uh, the prognostication of our patients. So we had the IPSS, the IPSSR, we had all this genomic data for like 10 years, and then finally Dr. Papa Manuel and a very large group of international investigators all over the world actually put together this data in a very large cohort of patients, and then they came with this IPSSM that I'm going to briefly describe in the next couple of minutes. If I take kind of something out of this that I think is very critical is the understanding that P53 mutations seem to me, and I'm curious to know later what Aditi and Rami think, seems to be increasing. I think we're detecting more. I'm not saying this more, but, you know, as we have these tools, this entity that we used to say is 8% of the patients or something like that, it's actually becoming 30 to 40% of my practice at MD Anderson. So basically, when you apply this IPSSM, you will see the importance in terms of prognosis that having a P53 mutation, but by large tends to be biallelic in a large fraction of our patients as for our patients. So this is really uh, uh, critical, as you will see in, in the model. So let's go actually through... Uh, the tool itself. You can actually access this kind of for free if you go to Google or whatever server you use. I actually, to be clear, I do this with all my new patients actually as an exercise. This will give you both the IPSSR and the IPSSM at the same time. And it allows you to basically think about what is going to be the prognosis of your patients. You know, many times I tell to BC clinicians that, you know, it's actually not the best idea just to say this is low risk versus high risk. I mean, you 
do that. And then you apply one of these more uh, sophisticated tools and then they tell you, okay, prognosis is like 1.3 years. Yeah, it's low risk, but this is really a bad entity. So I think you will probably start thinking in a more aggressive way how to really approach this. But this is a wonderful tool that you can, you know, I think there's an application actually that you can have on, on, on the iPhone. So it will ask you uh, characteristics of the disease, like the percentage of blast, level of hemoglobin, platelet count, the neutrophil count, age of the patient. That's very important. So this is actually age adjusted. And then it will ask you for additional data in terms of what kind of cytogenetics. This is basically the IPSSR kind of vector for cytogenetics. And then it goes through the mutational data and what you're going to see is that it's going to ask you, do you have a P53 mutation? Yes or not. And then it's going to ask you, is this kind of monolilic or biolilic? So the reality is that I don't think any of us really have really the true kind of scientific molecular assay to really say that. So the tool that I applied in, in, in my head, if that makes any uh, sense, is that, for instance, biolilic could be someone that has two mutations of the P53, very high BAF, or a deletion of chromosome 17 plus, you know, mutation of uh, P53, whereas a single low BAF, probably that will be uh, monoallelic. You know, that's basically how I calculate that in, 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 in my clinic. This is actually what they will give you, give you this kind of graph. It will tell you this is the very low to, to the very uh, high uh, risk. And I think that actually is becoming a really important tool that we're all now using in the clinic. Dr. Tom Rocky at the last ASH meeting actually showed beautiful data confirming some of these uh, uh, results from the original IPSSM uh, groups. So let's start now with uh, the, the next phase of the talk, where we're going to see how uh, we, as our MDS team, uh, deliver and see if we can integrate this new evidence with a, a multidisciplinary uh, modern uh, care. So let's start with a patient with, or a situation or context of low-risk MDS with anemia. And I'm going to ask uh, Aditi and Rami for help here. So you referred a uh, gentleman, he's 69-year-old man, uh, seen by primary care doctor. He has uh, kind of modest anemia, I guess, hemoglobin of 9 grams, associated of fatigue, some dyspnea. Primary doctor does all these tests that we also do, B12, folate, etc. We already uh, uh, discussed this. I believe that a bone marrow was performed. I don't tend to do molecular testing in peripheral blood. I mean, occasionally I could do that, but most likely this was performed on the bone marrow. And then this patient has an SF3B1 mutation, has significant percentage of ring sideroblast, and has a low percentage of, of blast. So another question to Rami or Aditi is, you need to confirm the diagnosis. When do you refer this patient and will the IPSSM help you here? Let's maybe ask uh, Rami as he did a lot of this IPSSM work. Absolutely. Thank you, Guillermo. So obviously this patient has significant anemia. It seems he's symptomatic. Uh, and the <clears throat> diagnosis is MDS with ring sideroblast in the past. Now this fits the MDS SF3B1. Uh, you know, there are some missing information here for us to assume that this is the classical good subtype of SF3B1. So, for example, we want to know cytogenetics on this patient just to confirm that there are not complex uh, karyotype. Uh, that would be a surprise. And then the other thing, actually, you know, for the IPSSM, it does predict outcome pretty well. And as you just showed that the SF3B1 uh, is probably the most favorable. However, the, even the IPSSM put them in categories based on co-mutations. So if the patients have a mutation, for example, I think the one that most people agree upon is like RONX1, SF3B1. That group does not do as well. 
the other thing that was surprised to a lot of us when we started looking at the data, the addition 5Q with SF3B1 is not a good combination. So I think there could be some information gained more from the cytogenetics. But in general, the patient would be probably in the, you know, second category of the IPSSM. Uh, the blast 4% is a little bit higher, but uh, uh, so, so that's what I would look at, at the cytogenetics and the other mutations. Uh, I think, you know, from a practical point, like obviously, you know, this patient hemoglobin is nine, so maybe not yet transfusion dependent, but also we would like to know like their endogenous serum EPO level, because I think that would be important. Thank you, Rami. Any other comment, Aditi? Yeah, no, thank you so much, uh, Guillermo and Rami, uh, for those insightful uh, comments. I completely agree that I think cytogenetics would add value here for us to really prognosticate the patient well. The serum EPO levels would also be helpful in understanding what therapies can be made available to this patient. One of the things that I would also like to know, though I know is low risk, is really the performance status of the patient, you know, because as we know, 30% of patients with low risk MDS will eventually progress to high risk. So right at the beginning, I like to assess if these patients may be transplant evaluable in the future or not. But I think those would basically be the things we would be interested in. I think that's a very important point. And I saw a couple of recent consults like this because I call this a young patient, right? 69. And I, I see sometimes they are not typed early. And I've been in situations where you have to start that a few months later. Sometimes these patients may progress in an unexpected fashion. So I totally agree with you, Aditi, that an early transplant consultation for a young patient like, like this, particularly even younger than, and someone in the 60s is really something that I do in, in my practice. So you confirm the diagnosis. Now, the next question, and this has changed a lot through the COVID times that, you know, are still living here in, in Houston is, should you really start, when do you transfuse these patients, basically? You think this patient that is a little bit symptomatic with a hemoglobin of nine, is he a candidate for transfusions or, or not? What is your threshold, Aditi? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, where I practice, we would not be initiating this patient actually on transfusions. Our threshold is typically about seven grams per deciliter. Uh, so that but, you know, this is something which I think this is an interesting gray zone, because last year we also had data from like the large Sintra Rev study, right, which showed that you can actually prolong the time to transfusion uh, with Revlimid treatment. So uh, I would say, you know, however, this is not something that has directly translated into my practice. And plus, this mean this is probably not the right patient, but I wanted to bring up this example as well. And that's yeah. actually a very important point of this kind of early intervention or early initiation of therapy that could be very meaningful. It seems that the patient eventually became transfusion dependent and actually uh, um, it was getting like three units were a two-month period. So what will be the next step, uh, Rami? ESA, does Luz Patterson have a role here? I mean, for the medalist trial, that was the original indication. You know, this patient, if he uh, had failed an ESA or was not a candidate for an ESA, this will be on label. But what do we do today? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think obviously the patient seems that he's transfusion dependent. We still don't know their serum EPO level, but like, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit, but with simple model of the transfusion burden and the EPO level, you can actually predict the response to ESA. So if somebody is getting like, you know, 
more than two units per month, that still starts dropping down in terms of response to ESA. And if the EPO level is high, I think based on what you will show us and hoping for approval in that indication, Lusbatercept will have a role as an upfront therapy. I would say, you know, in, in my practice, I usually start ESAs before patients are transfusion dependent, like, you know, once they are in the, that symptomatic zone of anemia. Uh, we do try to keep patients above eight because I think those guidelines of seven are really for hospitalized patients. If you have somebody in their 70s with hemoglobin of eight, they are not functional on daily basis. So I usually would have started ESA before the patients are transfusion dependent. At this setting, if the EPO is high or the patient getting a lot of blood, I think based on what you will show us, you probably could make a case to move to the Lusbatercept from the get-going. I actually agree with what uh, Rami said, that I tend to try to keep those uh, transmission thresholds a little bit higher. If You know, COVID was difficult, but now we're kind of going back to usual. So seven is too low for a lot of these patients. And then I see a lot of this early initiation of ESAs that I think was also a great idea. Indeed, actually, the original Nordic data showed that the only benefit with ESAs I mean, in those days, was combined with a GCSF was actually in the very low burden uh, uh, patients. Okay, so this is where we are right now. This is an algorithm that we have used in in, in the past. So you know, we're gonna focus right now for the lower risk uh, side. We already defined them by IPSSS, IPSSR, uh, etc. And then you know, some of the interventions that we have: iron chelation, growth factors, loose patterns, hypomethylating agents. We already defined the del 5 q entity, highly sensitive to lenalidomide. Just to mention the uh, hypoplastic MDS, that is where I use actually ATGs, uh, um, cyclosporine, uh, el trombo pack. And then you know, Dr. Aditi was talking about allotransplant. This is actually something that is not very commonly done in low-risk uh, disease. But again, younger patients like this individual may be at some point candidates for for for, for that. So that's kind of what we have uh, uh, today. So what are the initial approaches that we have for anemia in, in our patients? So we have the ESAs that uh, Rami already mentioned. This has been our standard of care for maybe 30 years. I'm not sure. Actually, I need to go historically to see. First, but for as long as I've been a hematologist in training, actually, th- those are the drugs. They've been wonderful to our patients, but, you know, we could argue they are not super effective. They're different than, you know, you may need to use different kind of schedules, those escalation, and they, most of these patients actually eventually will um, lose their effect. And then these transfusions actually are not trivial. I don't know that the community of people that follow this, that don't treat these patients, realize how actually difficult this is. So these are actually time-consuming, they are toxic, they can give you both chronic and very severe acute toxicities, and eventually they become like a major burden to our patients. Indeed, actually, my perception is that this is probably what the patients care most. You know, I skip a transfusion this week. Actually, I've been two weeks without a transfusion. This is sometimes how modest. You can be telling them about your BAF went down or whatever. No, they really care about this. It's a major issue for our patients. And this was particularly difficult also uh, during the COVID pandemic, where we, this, as uh, Aditi said, became really uh, difficult. We also know that uh, uh, those patients that are transfusion dependent, and, you know, to be honest, when I saw this kind of data, I didn't really understand it because to me it's kind of a circular concept. Yes, you are transfusion dependent, you have poor prognosis, but the reality is that this is really important to, to understand. So that very simple fact that you are in bone marrow failure with anemia basically indicates that the outcome of the patient is going to be uh, significantly worse. So this is really important for our patients. 
So there's been quite a bit of, of an effort in trying to develop new compounds. A lot of this work actually came out of uh, 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 Albert Einstein uh, with Amit Verma, a colleague of uh, Aditi. But basically through actually kind of studies that were not initially intended to improve anemia in patients with malodysplasia or maybe thalassemia, uh, the development of an antibody that basically modulated this TGF-beta pathway resulted actually in improvement in erythrocytosis in animal systems and then subsequently in a number of phase one and phase two studies. There were actually two compounds, one developed originally by Dr. Komroki Sotarsetep in parallel, uh, Luzpatercept. So we had actually ample evidence, both in preclinical, clinical and early clinical trials, that this uh, uh, class of uh, drugs are actually active in this context, improving erythrocytosis. And they do so in a different way than your prototypical ESA by actually acting a little bit later in the um, erythroid differentiation, more as a maturating agent. That's why you may hear or about them as a erythroid maturating agents as opposed to an ESA. The drug to me is very interesting because it's kind of a dominant negative. So basically it's an antibody that traps or binds to ligands that they go on and activate this TGF-beta pathway. And by doing so, basically they by inhibiting the inhibitor, they then promote uh, erythrocytosis. There's some data that this may be related to SMAT2 and 3 signaling. I think we still actually have a long ways to really understand how uh, these drugs uh, uh, work, although we have an idea in, of the importance of the TGF-beta pathway in erythropoiesis. As I mentioned earlier, we had the study called Medalist. In that study, we saw that this drug was well-tolerated, was active as a second-line agent against placebo. This was actually a New England Journal paper, plenary uh, attached. And we thought, the community, including Dr. Komroki, uh, uh, Dr. Sastri, that we should move this compound to the front line. And that resulted in the design of this study known as the COMMANDS trial. This was presented uh, last Friday at the ASCO meeting, one of the, I think, most important presentations at this ASCO for sure in, in hematology. So this is a very large international uh, trial uh, that randomized, as you can see, in the eligibility criteria, patients with lower risk MDS. And this is important to emphasize regardless of their ring ceroblastic status. So this was for both positive and negative uh, RS patients with low risk disease by IPSSR. So this will include some patients with intermediate risk disease with less than 5% blast. These patients had to be transfusion dependent, as you see defined there, two to six units in an eight-week uh, period. And then this is very important to emphasize because I saw at the ASCO meeting some questions or confusion about this. The patients had to have an EPO level of less than 500, but the reason for that has nothing to do with the loose patterns. It actually has to do with the fact that the control arm here is epoitin alpha. And we know that these drugs don't really act very well over uh, EPO levels over 500. So in another in a way to give a chance actually to the control arm to really work, we basically limited EPO level there. And then these patients were ESA naive. Basically, this is like frontline therapy for, for anemia. The study was stratified by EPO level, by the transfusion burden, and the ring blast status. If you met that criteria, then you were randomized one-to-one to, -one to loose using the same kind of label, you know, one milligram per kilo every three weeks with a dose escalation. You are familiar with that from the medalist trial versus epoetin alpha. There were also some questions at the ASCO meeting in terms of the dosing. Here we use uh, the dose schedule that is kind of sanctioned by the FDA. So actually majority of these patients, I think, went to like the highest dose possible of uh, the poetin uh, alpha. The same actually with the loose patterset. And then what is really important for this was the primary endpoint. And the primary endpoint was a composite endpoint that included transfusion dependency for at least 12 weeks 
with a concomitant increase in hemoglobin level of 1.5 grams per deciliter. So you have to have both to be called a responder. And when you look at this as the primary endpoint of this study, basically it was doubled for those patients in the Luspater septarm, 58.5% versus 31% for those in the ESA. This is the intent to treat analysis. This was how the study was designed. And it clearly shows that you basically double the response rate when you use Luspater upfront as opposed to epoetin alpha in patients with low-risk malodysplastic syndrome. We provided some kind of granularity to these results at the meeting. So the darker color is the Luspater set, the clearer color is the ESA. And basically, you see that for those patients, regardless of the EPO level, this is in favor of the Luspatercept. If you look at the transfusion burden, it's in favor of the Luspatercept. If you look at those patients with SF3B1 mutation, this is in favor. We kind of expected that from the Medalist trial. Wild type refers to those that are SF3B1 negative, but we don't know actually. Well, we know because this is going to be updated at IHA uh, next week, but there's going to be more analysis in terms of those that are SF3B1 negative that are referred here as wild type. Now, the question is in terms of this ring seroblast phenotype. So it turns out that around 70% of the patients on the command trial were RS positive. This was not planned. We don't know. Of course, this is not the typical distribution, although probably maybe Rami can tell us later, but around half of the patients would be RS positive. And I believe actually the IMERT study that we're going to hear soon also was enriched for this particular population. So that's actually interesting. So what we saw is in the RS positive, of course, Luspatercept is very superior, but here actually the response rate in the RS negative, that was around a third of the patients on this trial, was 41% for Luspatercept versus 46% for the ESA. Now, what I think is actually as important, and actually if you ask me uh, if I was ever one day a patient with this disease, more important is actually the duration of the response, so the quality of the response. So this is the duration of transfusion dependency as an intent to treat. So you see on top the Luspatercept, uh, uh, the bottom the pointing. And when you look at this, actually it's 126 weeks for Luspatercept versus around 77 for the pointing alpha. Hazard ratio is around 0.45. So basically you're kind of doubling the amount of time that you're free of uh, transfusion. And that actually, if you do the math, that is quite simple, constitutes almost an extra year free of transfusion. This is really not trivial. I think this is really powerful uh, uh, data. And then, you know, when we look at, for instance, this issue of the responses for the RS positive versus RS negative, actually, when we look at the duration of responses for both morphological entities, what you see actually, as expected in the RS, so it's 120 weeks versus 47, you know, highly significant. But actually, even if the numbers are small, and maybe the study is not fully powered to really answer uh, this question, the curve is actually in favor of the loose patterns where you have more durability of these responses. So I think this is really important data suggesting that you have an increased rate of response and that the quality of these responses is likely superior with a loose patercept as opposed to an uh, ESA. The other important piece is the safety. They're very similar. And if you look at grade three, four uh, uh, toxicities, a lot of these are actually disease related, like the cytopenias, et cetera. You know, it was maybe a little bit more patients with T, but there is a point that I learned actually during the meeting is that this actually account for events through the time the patients were on trial. And actually these patients on the loose patterns that were actually probably twice as long on a study compared to the ESA. So actually, if you divide that by half, there is different. There is no difference in terms of uh, any of these toxicities. So this is actually a very important point that exposure was significantly longer. If you look at progression to high-risk AML, progression to AML or death, they're basically similar. I think it's going to be very important for this study to keep reading over the years and see actually if this kind of 
early transmission dependency, longer duration of transmission dependency at some point really changes the natural history of, of, of this disease. So basically, we thought in the presentation that this actually shows clearly this superior to an ESA. This is significantly longer duration of these responses. And this actually in this head-to-head -head study probably uh, suggests that uh, this drug is, should be, if it's approved at some point by the FDA, if they think that's appropriate, should be probably the standard of care for a majority of our patients uh, that are becoming transmission dependent with low-risk myelodysplastic syndrome as the first-line therapy, regardless of mutational status, or uh, uh, morphology. Um, there are some practical issues with this drug uh, that sometimes we see in the community people not really remembering. You know, you increase at a dose of one milligram per kilo. Dr. Konrobki remembers this very well. This is kind of uh, an early FDA safety issue with some of the studies because they didn't want us to go to hemoglobins of 15, 16. We thought this was funny, but of course, there's a safety issue there. If you don't control for that and patient has a vascular event, that will be very uh, tragic. But eventually, you will probably have to escalate the dose up to 1.75 milligrams per kilo. You probably have to do some mitigation strategies for patients at high risk of thromboembolic events, hypertension. But I have to tell you that we've treated over 100 patients in our practice, and this is actually really a very rare uh, situation that is really very seldom uh, problematic in, in our practice. And I would like now basically to introduce my dear friend and colleague and a leader in the field, Dr. Rami Konrocki from uh, Moffitt Cancer Center. Rami? Thank you, Guillermo. Thank you for the kind introduction and uh, setting the pace very nicely for me and Aditi for the next part. So this is continuation. The same patient, uh, I think we talked about, uh, eventually got started on erythroid stimulating agents and it seems drove around uh, 15 months, which probably is around where we expect those things to run out. And you just showed us the data, even sometimes less than that. So the patient after 15 months is becoming back transfusion dependent, again, back to three units every month. And this time, obviously, the EPO level is high. So I think the questions that I will pose for both of you, maybe we'll start with a DT, like in, in your mind, is this a ESA failure? And if so, what would be our next line of therapy? Yeah, this is actually a pretty common scenario that we do see sometimes referral from the community or patients that we're treating in the clinic. So thank you, Rami, for the question. But, you know, when you start seeing this sort of pattern of where they lose response to ESA, one situation could be that are they failing or becoming refractory to ESA therapy and should we start considering at this point second line losparacept? But one thing I also worry in this situation is, is the patient progressing? You know, should we be worried that the percentage of the bone marrow blast may go up? So for, uh, for me, this would really be an indication to remarrow the patient and get, uh, stance on what is going on in the bone marrow. Do we have additional mutations to deal with? Have there been any changes in the cytogenetics uh, before we initiate any other new type of therapy? I would like to hear what Guillermo also has to say in this regard. I agree totally with Aditi. One thing that I always teach my fellows is that this disease is very dynamic. It changes. And I think Every time that you're going to make a therapeutic change, as you're going to do here 15 months later, I think it's totally indicated to do that because you may find occasionally new molecular changes, new cytogenetic changes. Sometimes these patients, you think they're still in low risk, they progress to high risk. So that's a very important and wise point from uh, Aditi that uh, you need to make sure that you're still treating the same entity. I totally agree. 
Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, would both of you be thinking of Luspatercept if we confirmed no disease progression? I think so. I mean, this is right now the label, right, of uh, medalist. This patient has SF3B1, mutated, reinsteroblastic anemia, has received ESA, and is now uh, transfusion-dependent. So this will be kind of the standard of care. Absolutely, absolutely. I totally agree. I would do the same. Yeah. Yes. And then, obviously, we will be talking about MTLSTAT. I'll show you some of the data that we presented also on Friday. Um, but would be that a consideration? Could newer modalities be used in the second line, or they are going to replace Luspatercept? Yeah, I mean, I think if we follow what's happening, you know, the commands data is very positive. That probably could move Luspatercept to front line. Then you will not be using Luspatercept as a second line agent. I will not really. Unless, as you published recently, you come with some type of combination or something like this. Traditionally, actually, in the past, before we had those patterns, that we will treat these patients with a low-dose hypomethylating agent type of approach. For sure, the three of us will try to enroll this patient in a clinical uh, trial. And we got those patterns a couple of years ago. You will do that, but, uh, you know, you could probably do better than the results that we had with uh, Medalist. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Dr. No, no, no. Just wanted to add, I completely agree. And then, you know, the sometimes, you know, when we, uh, I think with the IMETEL stat, what's really interesting is the fact that it's targeting something which is more uh, mutation agnostic, right? Just like telomere biology. So these sort of drugs are also very interesting for us. And you'll tell us more about it, that this may have more broader application too, in the sense of if you're missing some data points, you can still apply these treatments. Yeah. Absolutely. And I agree with Guillermo. I think what will happen, or we hope what will happen, is we'll move the landscape that the spatter set eventually will become more a first line, MTLSTAT will be second. I think for patients like with MDS ring sideroblast, SF3B1 mutation, they have a very good chance of response to LUSPA in general, which still have probably more favorable profile, safety profile. So I always probably will go for that uh, as a first line. So all right, so I think we've been talking about this, but I think, you know, this is an important issue in the community because I see a lot of patients that are almost ongoing on ESA where really I, I, I question the benefit. There have been several trials or, or studies trying to look at ESA responses defining ESA failure. I think in general, roughly around 40-50% of the patients respond to ESA from the get-going. Uh, Dr. Sophie Park from the French group published a large series Com- combining Europe and USA data showing that even when we look at not solid criteria like trial, around 50% of the patients respond. Eventually, obviously, everybody has ESA failure. It could be a primary failure that somebody would not respond from the get going, which typically is around half of the patients, or eventually everybody will have a secondary failure. And when you look at the outcomes for those patients, uh, they actually, their survival is measured in like less than five years. So it's not, you know, as we think that those patients will be okay, particularly if they are transfusion dependent, those numbers drop down even more significantly. And the primary ESA failure is associated with higher risk of going to leukemia as well. This is the famous uh, uh, Dr. Hamstrom model that we really can predict the response to EPO simply, uh, looking at the magnitude of transfusion burden, and the serum EPO. Like I never memorized the model completely, but in my mind, if somebody takes more than two units of blood or their EPO is above 500, their chance of response to EPO is less than 10%. So, and even a combination of those things. And what was striking to me when Guillermo was presenting the commands, when you look at that subset of patients, 200 to 500 EPO level, 
their response to endogen to to erythropoietin was 10 or 12%, I think. So very low rate, emphasizing this in, in, in a randomized clinical trial. Now, this is my approach. And I think uh, I'm excited that hopefully I'll have to update those slides and start kind of, uh, uh, you know, entering the data from the commands and the MTL stat on those. Uh, but obviously, when we treat in lower risk, in most of the patients, we are treating for anemia. That's the major indication. Rarely, if ever, we'll treat for, you know, isolated neutropenia or, you know, thrombocytopenia. Uh, but sometimes the neutropenia, the thrombocytopenia can dictate your choice. If somebody have anemia, but their platelets are 40, you're not necessarily treating the thrombocytopenia, but it may not allow you to use lenalidomide, for example, even if we are using it in non-Del5Q. So I think, you know, in general, after ESA failure, if patients have deletion 5Q, lenalidomide is the standard of care. And I think uh, Aditi uh, referred to the uh, elegant uh, Spanish uh, central REV study that's actually even moving the lenalidomide earlier a little bit in, in patients with Del5Q with symptomatic anemia. To Guillermo's point, like this transfusion dependency was always like no, no brainer for me. Yeah, like if you are transfusion dependent, you are going to do worse. So what's the point? But then you look actually from that, you know, study that the magnitude or the survival correlated with the number of units. So with every two units, you see the survival curves dropping. And similar to Guillermo, I always thought this is disease biology, that if somebody is having more transfusions, they have more bone marrow failure. But we are starting to look at data of what happens if patients respond to a first or second line of therapy, if they become transfusion independent. Dr. Santini presented a little bit from the uh, medalist study uh, and, and the MTLSTAT studies, I think, and, and at least a medalist I know for sure, that responders that became transfusion independent actually had better overall survival. So maybe there is a point of, you know, transfusion independency more than just the, you know, uh, transfusion itself. The other thing, there is a lot of data coming on, on, you know, anemia per se and the interaction with, you know, congestive heart failure, cardiac remodeling. Uh, so I think what Aditi was saying also to start thinking of transfusion free survival or time to transfusion dependency is very important. So in general, I start patients if their hemoglobin is less than nine, you know, I would start thinking of ESA. I don't wait till either transfusion dependent, as I mentioned. And, you know, if there is ESA failure, as we mentioned, Del5Q, LEN, Non-Del5Q, if they have MDS with ring sideroblast, Luspatercept, I think, as uh, Dr. Garcia Manero referred to the medalist, had been set as the standard of care there. For the non-Del5Q, if they are young or hypoplastic, we do have similar approach to Dr. Garcia Manero using immunosuppressive therapy. The other patients, sometimes if they are just anemic, we use uh, lenalidomide plus erythropoietin. And finally, I think we've been working on this abbreviated course of hypomethylating agents or, you know, nowadays maybe oral hypomethylating agents. So this is what uh, Dr. Garcia Manero was alluding to, the medalist data. The medalist was done, you know, in patients that were lower risk MDS, withering sideroblast, transfusion dependent, ESA failure. So that, that was the group. And that's where the label or the approval is. And you can see here, you know, the primary endpoint was eight week. But if you even look at the durable responses, you know, extending 12 weeks or 16 weeks, uh, you can see that the Luspatercept was way superior. Uh, roughly, we say around one third of the patients will respond becoming transfusion independent. Actually, the magnitude of benefit is more, as also Guillermo alluded to, if you start those patients before they are heavily transfusion dependent. If you look at the, you know, low transfusion burden patients, the responses can approach 60 or 70 percent. 
Among the patients that are highly transfusion dependent, sometimes you will not be able to achieve transfusion independency rather than reduction in the transfusion burden. There was also update on data from Dr. Fino uh, at uh, past ASH looking at the durability of the responses uh, and the cumulative duration of transfusion independency, which actually approaches almost like 80 weeks. So it's almost approaching two years in those patients after ESA fa- uh, failure in the middle study. So definitely very active treatment in patients with MDS ring sideroblast after ESA failure. Um, now, what we presented this uh, Friday are uh, the phase three randomized clinical trial for, with Mtelistat. So Mtelistat is first-in-class telomerase inhibitor. We've actually been testing for years in both MPN and MDS. You know, it turns out that telomerase activity is uh, increased, obviously, in many cancer cells, including MDS cells. And, you know, the telomere is shorter. So sometimes by using a telomerase inhibitor, we are shortening it further, almost the principle of synthetic lethality for the, the clone. And Dr. Zidane presented uh, this data on Friday as well. So there was an earlier study, the phase two emerged that Dr. David Stinsma published in JCO, showing in phase two, we saw around 40% responses, durable uh, responses around one third of the patients remained more than one year transfusion independent. So based on that, the MTLSTAT uh, or the eMERGE phase three trial was conducted. Again, you know, those were lower risk MDS patients. They had to be transfusion dependent with relatively a, a heavy burden. So all of them had to have more than four units of blood every eight weeks. Uh, obviously no prior treatment with LEN or HMA. And those patients had to be either ESA relapse refractory or have low chance of response. And the randomization was two to one. 118 patients got MTLSTAT, 60 patients placebo. The MTLSTAT dosing uh, is 7.5 milligram per kilogram as IV infusion once a month. And this dosing is a little bit different from the studies with myelofibrosis. When you look at the baseline characteristics, uh, as Dr. Garcia Manero also mentioned, it was also enriched with patients with ring sideroblast around 60%. I think part of this we are seeing with the commands and emerge that basically there was some selection bias by the physicians, the investigators, because there were like obviously everybody knows the Luspater set works in MDS ring sideroblast. Everybody also knew that Enterostat had a, high, a stronger signal in that population. But part of it is also because the patients with MDS ring sideroblast do well in general in terms of the least chance of progression to high-risk MDS or AML. So they become prevalent in practice. Those are the patients that have lines of treatment failure and they go on clinical trial. Nonetheless, in this study, as I mentioned, 60% of the patients were, you know, ring sideroblast. And actually almost half of those patients were heavily transfusion dependent, requiring more than six units uh, every, you know, uh, eight weeks. So obviously the study met the primary endpoint. Uh, the eight-week transfusion independency was almost 40%. But even when you look at 24 weeks, almost one-third of the patients were transfusion independent. I think what was important and interesting is that the responses both in ring sideroblast positive and ring sideroblast negative were almost similar. And the, the responses were, you know, regardless of the transfusion burden. So even patients that had more than six units transfusion uh, burden at baseline had a similar response, where actually many of the other treatments don't do as well. So that, that's appealing. The other thing that, you know, was shown that the median hemoglobin increase on study was 3.6 grams. I think this is the second after lenalidomide and Del5Q, where we see a drug that can have that, you know, robust increase in the hemoglobin. 
And again, those responses are durable. So when you look at the median duration of response, those patients were transfusion independent for almost a year compared only to 13 weeks with the placebo. Also uh, was shown, and I think uh, Aditi uh, alluded to this, uh, that this disease could, this treatment could have potential disease modification. Uh, there were data presented on several mutations, including the SF3B1, ASXL1, that you see reduction in the allele burden. And there is actually some correlation between the reduction in the allele burden and the hematological improvement seen. So this is something obviously we're going to be exploring further, but sounds promising that there could be potential disease modification. How about the safety? In general, you know, uh, relatively safe. The major adverse event with this is myelosuppression. There are grade three and four thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, uh, almost in half of the patients. They typically happen in the second and third week for a duration of almost a week. Then the counts recover. So with, you know, holding and those adjustments, there were not increased, you know, uh, febrile neutropenia events or mortality upfront, but definitely a grade three and four neutropenia and thrombocytopenia are things to observe in the middle of the cycle. And it may need to be mitigated by delaying the next cycle by a week or by those reduction for the subsequent cycles. What about other things in development? Uh, obviously, hypomethylating agents are widely used in the United States for lower risk MDS. In Europe and Canada, they are not approved. So I always say this is USA phenomena. Uh, hypomethylating agents were approved in the higher risk MDS. Uh, I think Guillermo had, you know, worked uh, extensively on trying to get the benefit for lower risk MDS patients. For a while, I think people used to jump on those treatments as a first line, and we are realizing that that's not probably the best way. Uh, Guillermo and I actually published years ago showing that the survival for those patients after HMA failure was only 18 months, even in the lower risk. So we see this bone marrow failure uh, syndrome. So we preserve those as later line of therapy, or sometimes when the thrombocytopenia and neutropenia will dictate your choice. Like you cannot use, as I mentioned, lenalidomide in somebody with platelets of 30. Probably even imtilistat is not going to be a treatment of choice in patients with cytopenias. So I think, you know, what's been pioneered first is shorter duration of hypomethylating agents. Again, Guillermo had led the MDS consortium study that we are waiting to see the results of a randomization of five days AZA versus three days decytabine uh, or azacitidine. But in the phase two data, we see really actually very comparable. And I think it's reasonable sometimes, particularly in older patients, to use those three days regimen. Also, he's pioneered over time the use of the oral uh, decitabine combined with cetazuridine. Uh, this is now approved, and the label does include intermediate risk by uh, revised IPSS. Uh, and basically, you know, cetazuridine is a inhibitor of CDA enzyme, so this allows the absorption of decitabine. So this is almost 99% bioequivalent to IV decitabine. And it's also been looked at a lower risk MDS. Uh, this is again uh, data from Dr. Garcia Manero looking at lower dosing of the uh, oral decitabine cetazuridine in lower risk MDS patients showing early promising responses. In addition to this, obviously, we have oral azacitidine in development. As you know, oral azacitidine is approved for maintenance in AML, but the dosing is not the same. And oral azacitidine is not equivalent to IV or subcutaneous azacitidine. They cannot be used interchangeably. Uh, again, again, Dr. Garcia Manero presented data in lower risk. They selected patients that were higher risk, lower risk in a way, that they have thrombocytopenia, higher risk features. And they were treated with uh, oral azacitidine. But I think the dosing was even more than the maintenance. So they realized early, although the drug had activity, they were seeing hematological improvements, platelet response, but there was excess febrile neutropenia. So he's coming back now with shorter 
you know, duration, less dosing, trying still to figure out. So the bottom line, I think we have oral decytabine being further explored in lower risk. We have oral azacitidine. We have a different format of oral azacitidine similar to the oral decytabine, all in clinical trials and in lower risk MDS. And I think with that, I'll stop and I'll uh, transition to Aditi to take us through the higher risk. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamrokji, for such a wonderful presentation. Uh, and this is a perfect segue now to move into just quickly some updates in high-risk MDS. Uh, so now, actually, we're going to go back to David. And if you now see additional testing have shown that he has a TP53 mutation and complex karyotype. And assuming that now his functional status is declining and a donor is not currently available, I would like to pose the question to Dr. Garcia Manero is, what options would you pursue at this point for a patient with high-risk MDS when stem cell transplant looks challenging in this situation? Uh, would you go back to HMA therapy combinations? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is a very difficult combi- uh, situation. We see this all the time now for one reason or another. And this constellation of the, muta- the P53 mutation with the complex karyotype is very difficult. So we do not tend to give induction chemotherapy to these patients because we think you gain a lot of toxicity and it's not clear that responses are greater than with a hypomethylating agent. If you don't have a trial in the community, the standard of care will be single agent, sacitabine, desitabine, oral desitabine. Actually, we don't know if any of these other combinations will be better actually than single agent HMA today. So I think that will be acceptable. Some of these patients actually will respond to therapy. And then the question that you were asking is, if this patient had some type of cytogenetic or even sometimes occasionally molecular response, would you consider this patient for a transplant followed with some type of maintenance uh, therapy post-transplant? So that's what I will do. Of course, I will consider a clinical trial. The vignette talks about anti-CD47 antibodies, for instance, magrolimab that had been proposed to be agnostic of the mutations. I think BCL2 probably doesn't have a big role in this particular uh, molecular context, but this is a difficult disease with a prognosis that is actually well understood, maybe a survival of around one year or so. So very difficult and becoming common. What is your experience, Rami, with this patient population? Yeah, I'm I'm totally in agreement with uh, Guillermo. I think this is tough population. Obviously, we always say clinical trial, but not, you know, most, you know, may not have access to a clinical trial. Obviously, I think all P53s, if there is access to clinical trials, they should be treated on trial. But outside of trial, I totally agree with Guillermo. Like we shy away from intensive chemotherapy and I don't actually even add venetoclax. We've been doing it sometimes out of the box in MDS, some selected patients, but not the P53, particularly if they're not going to transplant. So I think hypomethylating agents, uh, you know, you could argue like even I think Guillermo presented some data on the P53 that they actually do pretty well with the oral decitabine. Uh, uh, it was a mixed group. They were had a little bit more intermediate, but still, if not better, not inferior. So I think it would be a convenient option to think of oral decitabine for this patient. I think Aditi, your group is trying to pioneer this kind of metronomic uh, you know, dosing, lower dose, kind of continuous. So obviously those could be a little bit out of the box approaches, but looks promising. But the gist is the backbone is just a hypermethylating agent. No, absolutely. And I so agree with both of you. This is the hardest patient population to treat. So just diving in, you know, we're just very quickly going to look at our algorithm for how we treat patients with high risk MDS. 
And as we discussed at the beginning of the talk, right off the bat, we really want to assess whether these patients are candidate for transplant, because the way that we think about it is that, you know, is this sort of therapy or bridging therapy that we can use to actually get this patient to transplant? Because even in this day and age, allogeneic transplant is still the curative treatment for patients with high-risk MDS. Uh, and uh, so this is kind of st- here exactly where the different types of drugs that we talked about, HMAs, oral HMAs, uh, and, you know, high-intensity chemotherapies have fallen out of favor even for us, but clinical trials are also highly favored. So let's talk about what are the possible available emerging modalities which have interesting mechanisms of action that we could use to treat patients with high-risk MDS. This is from a review that we had recently published, which highlights some of these interesting targets. But the ones that we're specifically going to talk about today are really the CD47. We want to talk about TIM3 as well, which is highly expressed on the surface of T cells and leukemic stem cells. Uh, And then, of course, uh, venetoclax. So the CD47 uh, blocking antibodies are those that have really gained traction in uh, acute myeloid leukemia as well as high-risk MDS. And one of these drugs, magrolimab, uh, is actually blocks this very important immune checkpoint, CD47, uh, which is expressed uh, and basically expresses this sort of like do not and then this do not eat me signal, which is expressed, allows these tumor cells to escape sort of detection by the immune system. But magrolimab, by blocking the CD47 antibody, induces a macrophage-mediated phagocytosis of the tumor cells. And uh, the combinatorial strategies here appear to be successful, and it does synergize with azacitidine while upregulating these do not these eat me signals, which can then be targeted. Uh, so the data from the phase one study of magrolimab and aza is here, and as we can see, there is actually a very good CR and molecular CR rate of sixty percent and above with patients with MDS as well as AML. And what is actually very interesting and good is that even in patients that are TP53 mutated or these patients that uh, Dr. Um, Garcia Monero alluded to, the TP53 biallelic losses that we're seeing, we're really seeing pretty good rates of CR and molecular CR. So I think that future studies will give us some more information and across different mutational types or mutational spectrum, we are seeing activity of this drug. And safety-wise, so as we know, we have this on-target hemolytic anemia for which we give the priming dose in the first cycle. But once this is actually, you know, you get past this with the good monitoring and transfusion support as needed, the drug is otherwise well tolerated in combination with azacitidine. And there's a low rate of discontinuation really due to adverse effects. And even though it's an immune targeting drug, there aren't any significant immune related side effects that we see as we see with some other checkpoint inhibitors and stuff. So we have the phase three enhanced study, which is actually ongoing, and it will give us additional data on magrolimab and azacitidine combination. Uh, and here the trial is the patient, the um, randomization is one is to one, where you have magrolimab plus aza versus the placebo and azacitidine. And the patients that are being un, uh, enrolled on the study are those with untreated MDS uh, that are high risk. 
Other combinations or immune agents that are also very interesting are sabatolimab, which is the TIM3 antibody. As we said, TIM3 is selectively more expressed on leukemic stem cells in AML and high-risk MDS compared to normal stem cells. Uh, there are also other CD47 blocking drugs that are currently in trials, and they appear to look quite promising. So we're awaiting further data, actually, from these studies. Uh, venetoclax, as we know, you know, venetoclax and AZA has been a very successful combination in AML, as demonstrated by the Viali-A study, which helped venetoclax get the approval in AML. And the mechanism of action really of venetoclax is that it blocks the BCL2 pocket where it binds the apoptosis effectors, BIM and BAX. And there's a massive activation of these apoptotic effectors and pushing cells into apoptosis. And when you look at data, even in high-risk MDS, this combination of AZA and venetoclax is truly synergistic. So I don't use this word lightly because, you know, we do talk many a times of combinate combinations and combinatorial strategies, but seeing true synergy is rare. And this is what we have seen in AML. And we hope we can actually exploit this for our high-risk MDS patients as well. So this is some data actually from the phase one study of menetoclax in combination with AZA. And, you know, you can see that there is a pretty good uh, CR and a molecular CR rate uh, and that there are some, like, as we mentioned, you know, the TP53 patients don't respond perhaps as well to venetoclax, but we do see some responses here, but we need more studies to tease this out further. Uh, and then if you look across the board uh, at patients that might have ASXL1 mutation, some of these more high-risk uh, uh, high-risk MDS patients, they seem to have a pretty good overall response rate, CR rates that I think need to be further teased out. And the advantage I see of this therapy is that it's a powerful therapy that you can actually use to bridge the patients to an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Now, one of the things to be careful about is really the duration of venetoclax in MDS, which as in these trials we can see are different compared to the AML studies. We have restricted it to 14 days and the appropriate dose reductions need to be followed for myelosuppression. So we have the ongoing phase three Verona study that is assessing this combination further. And just, uh, you know, I'm going to skim this slide just in the interest of time, but IRAC-4 is another very interesting target that has been identified in high-risk MDS with ongoing early phase studies. So this is a strategy that we're actually developing to uh, at Albert Einstein that Dr. Kamrokji alluded to, where I saw a question in the chat that what do we do with very frail patients that even those that are not able to get like even HMAs or any standard of care treatment, we're actually piloting this low dose kind of metronomic regimen where we're treating patients just weekly with uh, decidabine and venetoclax. Uh, and while this is an ongoing study and I cannot, uh, you know, give a lot of data points about it, what we're actually seeing is that patients are remaining uh, transfusion independent. There is actual hematologic recovery. We're seeing VAF reduction. But since this is a prospective study, only time will tell, you know, whether it affects, you know, progression-free survival, overall survival. But needless to say, this is a very well-tolerated regimen, and we are not seeing any discontinuations due to treatment-related adverse events. 
and just some retrospective data that we're presenting on EHA on patients that we treated with TP53 mutated AML and MDS, we did see that, you know, a small percentage of these patients that were treated did achieve a CR. So we're kind of looking forward to how this trial is evolving. Uh, and I'm going to stop right there. And I think thank you so much, everybody, for your attention. And this has been so interesting. Thank I also you. learned a lot of new things. Let's move on to the Q&A. Yes. So thank you. That was phenomenal, uh, Dr. Sastri. So we have a few minutes for questions, but I am going to ask you both, Rami and Aditi. So let's ask a very important question. To uh, Let's start with uh, Rami. So we've been uh, basically accustomed to wait let's say, four, eight to 12 weeks to assess ESA response in first line with Luspatercep. The question is, in view of that Luspatercep in second line works better in low transfusion burden, what do you think is the sweet spot to say, okay, ESA is not really working, I want to transition to second line Luspatercep? How do you do that? Yeah, I think, you know, that that's a very good question. Uh, one thing, I, I personally most of the time go to a higher dose of the ESA. Like I would go for like what is equivalent of 60,000 erythropoietin because historically we do like 40,000. We wait eight weeks, then we escalate to 60,000. That's another eight weeks. The patient is getting blood through. So I will go to like a 60,000 from the get going equivalent. And I think you still probably want to give it the six to eight weeks uh, and then move. Now, once we move to the spatercept, and I think I was seeing question about that as well, the key is really this rapid titration. Like, because many times I see the patient coming after six injections, they were never titrated above the one. And you nicely alluded to that, you know, like you have to go up. After two doses, 1.33. After two doses, 1.75. Actually, Dr. Platzpecker showed data in the higher transfusion burden, almost everybody needs dose escalation. So sometimes if I have a patient that are highly transfusion dependent, I will give them like, I will try to get them the 1.75 from the get going and not even do the dose escalation. But that's what I do. Uh, but I think the data is that probably to me saying that we should start having a lower threshold jumping off if ESA, if we are trying ESA, particularly with the efficacy that you showed us today from the commands. I have to ask you two questions and then I have two for Aditi, then I think we'll close. But you have done work on this. I want to ask you. So what is the experience actually combining um, an ESA with Luspatter said you recently published on this. Rami. Right. So obviously, what we publish are case series. Uh, as you uh, explained, you know, Luspatter said works on terminal erythroid differentiation. Uh, ESAs worked earlier, so technically or hypothetically, they could work together. Um, what we put together was a small case series of almost thirty patients. We took ESA failure. LUSPA failure, and then they did the combination. There were only a few patients that got it from the get going. But even, you know, after the failure of the two therapies, we saw almost one third of the patients responded to the combination. The most important predictors were some response to LUSPA. So if it was a secondary LUSPA failure, somebody had just some transfusion reduction with LUSPA, but not a very good response. You add ESA, you get it. The primary LUSPA failure had less response. Endogenous serum EPO level. So if those patients had EPO above 500, they were less likely to respond. So I think we'll see a lot of trials. I think in Europe, there is now upfront LUSPA ESA uh, ongoing. We have like an investigator-initiated study for LUSPA failure to come back and add ESA again to see for salvage. That's very good. Very quickly, how fast are the responses with the metal stat? And then we move to 
I did it. Yeah, I think the average was around like, you know, three to four months, but there were, were there some group patients that were like way, way later responders. This is similar to like, you know, a little bit like hypomethylating agents or lenalidomide that in the first couple of cycles, you probably are just dealing with that mid-cycle myelosuppression. And it's really in the third, fourth cycle we you see responses. Thank you, Aditi. So we're very excited about the IPSSM, all this stuff, very cool. But the question here is, what happens in places where they don't have this? Here they say rural clinics, but the reality is there are many countries, uh, continents that actually don't have access to even cytogenetics. So how do we deal with this? I know this is kind of a theoretical question, but I think it's a very important one. Yeah, so I think, you know, you're absolutely right, Guillermo. And, you know, thank you for the person that asked the question. I mean, this is a reality is that, you know, a lot of places don't really have access to accurate cytogenetic and molecular data. And uh, this is like a huge drawback that we must acknowledge as we keep updating our prognostic systems that in large parts of the world, you know, they are not usable, unfortunately. Uh, The one thing I will say, though, is what I have seen is that you do. uh, So first of all, you know, when uh, you showed us the nice timeline, You know, we do have lots of drugs available there. If you think about it, we have HMAs, we have lenalidomide. uh, And, you know, in most parts of the world, even in rural areas, I think eventually you can get cytogenetics. I do agree molecular data can be kind of challenging sometimes. But I think this is perhaps even an opportunity for us that as newer therapies become approved, right? Like those that we know are specifically good for patients with SF3B1 mutations, etc. How can we liaison and partner with the community, you know, to be able to really create like a dialogue about this and provide our help and support to them, you know, to be able to treat these patients effectively? Very quickly, because I think we have like 10 seconds. Can I add one thing quickly to this? So I, I think that the one thing I think you and I talked about before is like, important message that the Italians publish in the JCO, not every patient that's going to be upstaged by the IPSSM we should treat at higher risk because like they looked at hypomethylating agents. So by the fact once somebody is upstaged, if they are younger thinking of transplant, yes, those models are very strong predicting survival. But it, it is not automatically that somebody gets upstaged by the IPSSM, we have to jump on HMA. I think if the patient problem is anemia, we could still go stepwise. Uh, the, the only, you know, robust data on this, that they are good predictors of survival, but it's not automatic reflex to treat them all as higher risk. That's a great point. Then very quickly, um, Aditi, is, do you ever delay transplant in good responders? There's a question about the timing of transplantation. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So actually, no, we don't really delay transplant in the good responders because we know that eventually these patients will relapse if they have high-risk MDS. And, you know, this is probably the best window for us to transplant them when they're responding and they have a low blast burden and, you know, we're really able to effectively take them to transplant. So absolutely, I think, you know, the earlier we start the workup, the better, but we don't wait. Till- and then a last question, very provocative to Dr. Komroki. So do you see a role? Do you think that we need to do studies with imetastat in first line, similar to the commands? Yeah, like I, I think that would be interesting. The, the more we see data on the potential disease modification, maybe in the future, yes, like there could be a role if we identify a subset. 
at this point, as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, you look at the efficacy and the adverse events, and, and LUSPA doesn't have the model suppression. So if all our goal is to achieve transfusion independency, I still see MTLSTAT coming as the second line of therapy. However, like the more we get this, you could even, like I've been thinking even potentially we could combine those agents because like technically you published that sometimes with LUSPA and there are like other drugs now in development from the TGF beta that could have trilineage responses. So they could offset some of the myelosuppression you see. So, you know, I, I can foresee something like that in the future that we move really up front with the, you know, seeing if we can modify the disease early. At this stage, I probably will still sequence LUSPA first if the patient has a good chance to respond to it, then MTLSTAT. Thank you. I have to say that every time we do this together, I learn a lot and I enjoy it very, very much. It's really a pleasure to do this with you, uh, Aditi and, and Rami. And I hope this was of interest to, to the audience. And thank you very much for a peer review to you know putting this program together so nicely. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TVR860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Aztecs Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Geron.